Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good morning, everyone. I love the songs. It's Christmas time. I love the Christmas, you know, just the whole Christmas story. You know, you, you um, have nativity scenes at your house, I'm sure, and it tells the story of how you know, on what, probably December 25th, Joseph was walking along the donkey that carried Mary along the snow-covered hills of Israel, and they went to Bethlehem, and they went to the innkeeper, and he said, there's no room at the inn, so they had to stay in the stable, and the birth was announced, right, uh, to the, the three kings and the shepherds with this angelic choir, and they sang hallelujah, you know? That is not the Christmas story, by the way. That is, it is not. I mean, with the exception of the word Bethlehem, there's nothing in that story that's true. It wasn't born in December. Snow in Israel? Well, not in the spring when he was probably born. And then it's going, I don't know where to start. There's no innkeeper. There, there isn't. There was no room, but there was no inn. Uh, the, the angels... A host of angels is more of, of a battalion of military, not choirs. As a matter of fact, you won't ever find where angels sing in the Bible, ever. And they never. And the, and the kings, they weren't kings, and the shepherds were nine to eighteen months apart. They weren't there together. So, but besides all those details, it's an awesome story, isn't it? <laughs> Here's the point. It's interesting that sometimes what we what we begin to believe is the true story is not the story at all. It's, it's just uh, cultural interpretations of a story. A real faith is believing in what the Bible says. Nothing more, nothing less. And today we're going to look at, we're going to continue our series and what we can learn from the people uh, that were living by faith right up to the time of Jesus. And especially like the last 170 years or so. And and what we might learn, because Christmas is about uh, the promised one, the Messiah, and, and the longing for that promised one. That's what faith is. It's longing for. It's the belief that that will, in fact, happen. And we're, we have a lot to learn about how people prepared their hearts for the coming of the Messiah the first time, the first coming at his birth on Christmas. So what's interesting is today is we're going to learn some things about um, the 170 years before his coming, something happened in the Bible teaching during that period of time because we, we, know, we know this because of the way they interpreted what the Bible said. I want to give you like two stories just to illustrate something catastrophic must have changed in, in the way people perceived God and the way he worked before Jesus was born. Um, one is in John chapter 9. It's a great story. It takes up the whole chapter, you know, 34 verses. And it starts off with Jesus and his disciples coming upon a man, an older, you know, regular, a full-grown man, born blind, and now he's a beggar. And the first question, first question, this is just theological math taking place. They say to Jesus, who sinned the man before he was born blind, before he was born, who sinned the man or his parents? And Jesus went, what? He didn't say that. He, he went, hmm, interesting that you would even think that. But actually, he, he was born blind so that God could show his power. And so at that, Jesus kneels down, spits in the dirt, makes mud. He makes mud out of spit on the Sabbath. 
And he takes that mud and he rubs it on the eyelids of the man born blind and says, you need to go and, and wash this off. And when you do, you'll see. And that's exactly what happens. And that's supposed to be the story. Wow. This guy jumping around saying, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. No, no, because something happened in the 170 years leading up to the coming of the Messiah. Because now he's taken to the Pharisees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scholars of the time, they're divided into two camps. And, and one group says, how could this be from God because he made mud with spit on the Sabbath? I mean, what? And this, the other group of Pharisees were saying, listen, no one's even heard stories about a man being born blind, being able to see outside of God doing it. This, is, this might be from God after all. So they don't know what, they're, they're, they're kicking this around. And then finally, they turned to the man that was healed, and they said, well, what do you think? And he says this. He says, he says, nobody has ever heard of opening a man's eyes that he was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And their response, look at this. They say, <laughs> this man replied, uh, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they throw him out. Okay, that, so that's how they dealt with it. They, they were able to answer the question, who sinned the boy before he was born or the parents? So there's that. How, how do you think those thoughts? Of course, you've been taught that. Here's another case in point. Okay, that was John chapter 9. John chapter 3. This is a very famous chapter. Again, the whole chapter is dedicated to a person that loves God's revelation or maybe something more than that. And he wants to know he wants to know if he has eternal life. This is the story of Nicodemus. And, and that's where the famous verse, right? maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. But even that's a confusing, a confusing sentence for Nicodemus. So let me just tell you, let me show you the context of this, give you an idea. Listen for how Nicodemus is a, a prestigious and very intelligent Bible scholar but something's happened in the 170 years, so he can't make sense out of something that should be clear. It starts in John chapter 3, verse 1. And now there was a Pharisee. His na his na the man's name was Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. See that? And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, teacher, you, uh, look, we know, he, he realizes this must be a good thing. We know that you are a teacher that has come from God because no one could perform signs like you do uh, if, if God were not with you. And so Jesus said, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, okay, if, unless, unless you're born from above or born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God, you must be born again or born from above. Same word. And, and Nicodemus says, well, how could that even be possible? You know, how, how does a person get born a, again or from above? And then Jesus says this to him because he should know better. He says, Jesus says, aren't you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand such things? He knows so much, but he doesn't even know about God. That Nicodemus would have to be told, the teacher of, in Jerusalem, he would have to be told, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How could he not know that about God? Because he's practicing religion, but not pursuing God. He's practicing religion, but he's not pursuing God. Now, for us to understand 
what must have happened for someone of this uh, right, education and understanding to miss the major point here? I've asked my friend Carol Cummings to come and join us again. Again, she's one of our primary teachers in our adult discipleship communities. She's helped uh, design a lot of our curriculum, does Old Testament, New Testament survey. She teaches a class that's very popular called the zip, Jesus' Zip Code, all right? Living in Jesus' Zip Code, that is understanding the culture that Jesus was living in, and that should help us understand what's happening here. You don't, I'm going to surprise you. She comes from a long line of teachers. <laughs> 76 years ago... Melinda's, Melinda's mother, her favorite time of the whole week was to go to Sunday school because her great-grandmother taught it. 75 years she taught Sunday school. Yeah. 75 she years. Loved, she, my, she was, my, little, my mother-in-law was four years old, and every week she couldn't wait because wow. okay. your great-grandmother was teaching a great class. Thank you. We owe you. <laughs> Cassidy's no, you, owe you. You, you think so, this, Mamie. Yeah. Okay, help us understand <laughs> sure. what, what's happened that things have gotten so far that, that Nicodemus is miss, missing something yeah. that should be obvious. Well, so when we left off last week, the remnant, um, they're kind of celebrating because the Maccabeans, they turn around and they have this victory and they're returning to Scripture to try to figure out what does all this mean. And they find those key elements in Malachi that say... The, the coming of Messiah is immediate. It's imminent, so let's get ready for it. And, of course, they rebuild the temple, and we talked about that last week. But what we're also going to find, and this starts at about 164 B.C., and this is going to continue until about 250 A.D., is that this is going to be a period known as rabbinical Judaism. Okay. And I know that sounds really lofty to everybody, but we're going to break it down very simply because this is going to really help us to be able to see from Nicodemus's lens. And quite frankly, it's a bit distorted. <laughs> so we've got to get ourselves there. So, um, so again, Malachi had said on behalf of God that you all have literally neglected, you've ignored Torah. And let's remember that Torah is the first five books of our Bible. It's the same thing for Jewish tradition. It's Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. And contained within the Torah are 613 mitzvot. Okay, commandments is what you kind of think of them as. And so as the remnant are returning to Torah, they're really giving a lot of focus and attention to these 613 commandments. And it's kind of like you see, you know, in our church today, you've got these flourishing Bible studies. People are literally, of their own volition, they're sitting down and they're studying Scripture. And what emerges out of these groups are a series of questions. Of course, so what do these mitzvot, what do these commandments really mean? And how am I supposed to practice these right. in my daily life? Right. So then the result of this is that teachers, people who have a keen understanding of Torah, they sort of emerge out of these groups, and they're called the rabim. And that's just the plural of rabbi. So for those of you all who are thinking, well, how come there's no rabim in the Old Testament? Well, that's because, again, all of this is occurring prior to Jesus' coming, but it's during this 400-year this period of supposed silence. So nevertheless... Um, the Rabim are each taking the 613 mitzvot and they're giving their interpretations of these and how to live them. And eager students self-select and attach themselves to a particular rabbi. And it's very much like a duckling getting an imprint from their mother. Right. Um, and they're behaving, they're following it precisely how their rabbi is observing these mitzvot. And to illustrate just how prolific 
um, this period of rabbinical Judaism has become, and also how you take these 613 commandments, and then you get all of these interpretations and all of these regulations around how to observe them, right. and then you have what's called the Mishnah. I think we've got a picture of it that's going right. to come up. Um, so this book is basically being developed at the time of Jesus. Right. Super be, small font. You should see yeah, this yeah, font yeah. in here. We've got a picture <laughs> yeah, of that too. Yeah, and it's a paperback. It's a <laughs> .6 font or something. Right, no hope. And this, this would represent, okay, about how much in the same font style that would be in the Torah, the, the, ten, the first five books. So comparatively speaking, they start with this. And it's teachings about teachings about teachings. Yes, exactly. And, and the thing about it is, now, that we, now we can get into the story of Nicodemus, because as Matt mentioned, John, the gospel writer, doesn't give us too many details, but the ones he gives us about Nicodemus at the start of this exchange are very important, because Nicodemus isn't just part of rabbinical Judaism. He is one of the leaders over rabbinical Judaism. Right. He's a great rabbi. But coupled with that, he sits on, not, it's not just, in English we call it the uh, Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. So to kind of better appreciate this in, in contemporary terms, he sits on the religious supreme court over Judaism. Okay? And there are 71 members of this council. Um, so, you know. That's why Jesus says, you are the teacher of Israel. Yeah, ex right? exactly. And he's astonished because, right. uh, you know, a little bit of the back, and by the way, I'm just going to call him Nick from this point forward, but, you know, Nick would have been a rabbi for at minimum 20 years. And while he's a teacher, he is also a lower court judge, and then you move up to the highest court. It's just like our judicial system today. And you're approved by your peers. Um, and to be a rabbi at this time, this is not just about going to school and you study Torah. This begins when young men were in their teens. And again, they're sitting in these Bible studies, and it might be, you know, if I was a, a young boy and I'm in Matt's group and Matt's a rabbi, Matt's observing how well do I understand Torah. And what that means is have I memorized Torah? Okay, they don't have your little app where you're just putting in a couple of words and then it pops and it tells you where you're supposed to find your scripture. They have it memorized. They also had to know the other 34 books of what we comprise as the Hebrew scriptures. And more importantly, Matt would be observing my behavior. I have to be willingly submissive to the 613 commandments, all 613, in order to become a rabbi. The proof had to be in the pudding. So now we're looking at a man who's in his later years, and he has been observant. He's right. a God-fearing, observant man who's been doing this. And so he's sitting as a watchman on the Sanhedrin over Judaism. Right. So uh, for, just for a case in point, um, the fourth commandment, it, it's pretty simple, right? Um, six days you should labor. On your seventh day, it is a Sabbath unto the Lord. So, the, I mean, it's a gift from God. It's like it, you get to rest and enjoy and reflect on your relationship with God and that he saved you. You're not a slave anymore. You actually have this day off. Simple enough. And then what happens with the Mishnah? And yeah, so by the time we get here, you have 39 different categories of regulations, stipulations around what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And more importantly, within each of those categories, there are subcategories. So we're going to use an example from the Sabbath. Um, so it, it, let me just read from, because this is exactly how it goes. So if a dwelling is burning on the Sabbath and the scrolls of Scripture are in danger of burning, 
then you can rescue the scrolls, but you can only take them as far as the nearest alleyway, lest you walk further than you are allowed on the Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, when I'm running from a burning house, I'll remember to count my steps. Um, so this is why, by the way, Jesus, if you, if you look at the pattern of Jesus, he waits t- for the Sabbath to do miracles. It, it, because he's bringing, he's, he's saying, I didn't write the Mishnah. I, I don't follow the Mishnah. And so in, the, in John chapter 9 that I was referring to, he is, ma- he is spitting and he is making mud and he's telling the man to go and walk and wash. And it's to inflame this idea that they're following. Again, it's like they're experts. They're, they're, they're the guides, right? But, and they're experts in a compass, but they're holding it upside down. And Jesus is coming in saying, you're, you're practicing religion, but you don't know God. And that's, it. That's, that's his theme when he has these confrontations, especially like with Nicodemus. And, and when he does uh, have this evening with Nick, uh, you know, Jesus' ministry is in full swing at this point right. as a rabbi. And as John tells us, one of the reasons why Nicodemus comes to Jesus is not only because of his great teachings, but they are married with these miracles, right. which in essence are signs. Jesus is doing these miracles, not just to say, hey, listen to what I have to say, but I want you to watch me. Right. This is about me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you all have been expecting. Um, and, you know, his teachings have a lot of the leadership. They're in a quandary over this. Um, another example is from, you know, Jesus' public sermon on the mount. And so as an example, imagine him then saying in front of a group of people, some of whom are from the Sanhedrin, you know, you've heard it said, this is the sixth commandment or mitzvah, um, do not murder. Well, I say to you, if you, in anger, call someone a fool, then you have committed murder. So imagine how they're looking at Mishnah. Well, that's not in here, you know. Um, By this point, you've had, you know, generations of rabbis with their disciples who are taking the commentary, and then they're writing commentary on top of commentary. And in essence, what you've done is you've created this huge pile of hay, and Jesus then comes along, and he immediately identifies the needle— and the crowds are looking around saying, I didn't even know that the needle was there, right. and I don't even remember what we were going to get the needle for in the first place. Right. That's exactly what's happening right now. With, so. with, with each sir, you know, uh, commentary on a commentary, they're getting farther and farther away from the original yeah. Torah, and they're just making comments on yeah. And but, but I like that you um, spoke from John 9, because sometimes I think we... We have this perspective that all of the, the Pharisees, they were all over on this side right. and rejecting Jesus' teaching. Right. And, and for, for sure, there were many that were. But then we have this exchange with Nick. And one of the things that I think is most revealing is when John in verse 2, and he very simply tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Mm-hmm. And I find that so powerful because... For most of us, the times when we grapple with the really deeper questions of life, it's at night. It's when all of the noise that's going on in our head is finally silenced, and then we can begin to listen to our conscience speak. It's where the connection starts to happen. Um, We get on our beds, we've turned the lights on, and we have unplugged. But then we can start to hear our hearts saying things like, how do I get absolution? And I think Nick is having exactly one of those kind of nights. I think he's been listening to the teachings of Jesus, and they've been kind of mulling around in his mind, and now now they're permeating. Now they're moving down into his heart. And, Matt, I think he's asking, 
Am I guilt-free? Right. Is my conscience clear? And also, is my good, is it good enough? Right. Right. And, and I mean, you can see that in, he's, in, he's in this confusion of doing, right? And again, he's practicing religion without knowing God. And then Jesus shows up incarnate and he's saying things that he knows are true, but they're not part of the Mishnah. You know, you've heard it said, but Jesus says, I say. And, and, and it's like people, people that are dedicated to doing, they always have that plaguing question, is this enough? That's the problem with religion. Is this enough? I'm, I see this in churches. I see this with my friends that are committed to this, this economy of is it good enough? There's, there's two prodigal sons, right? I mean, you need to know that in the story of the prodigal son. And the one that's obvious that gets most press is people that run off and do hedonistic things, make decisions that, that are pretty selfish in nature and hurt themselves and others. There's other types of people that are just as lost, this older son that, that, that is just doing good. And there's so many people that are like doing good for their family and doing good for, and they're practicing the faith of their family. They're practicing religion, but they're not, they don't know God. And, it's, and, and they, they have to live with that anxiety of, is this enough? Or is this the right person? Some of them follow a pastor, and pastors love to be followed, you know, and, and they, they fo- or they follow a Bible teacher or a Bible leader, but they're not following God. They're not pursuing their relationship with Christ. That's where they go wrong. Nicodemus, the Spirit of God is haunting him, and so he has this conversation with Jesus at night. Yeah. And, and, and again, and we see this in all the gospel accounts, Jesus will meet you where you are. Right. And so he gives these, you know, three truths, these three responses to Nicodemus, who, again, he's looking for how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? What's the formula? What am I not doing that I need to do? And Jesus says, the first thing I want to say to you, Nick, is you are correct. I have come from heaven. In other words, I am Messiah. So I want you to know you have come to the right person. Two, (laughs) you've got to be born of spirit and water in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have got to trust, and that means, and Jesus tells them, you've got to trust in the one who has come from heaven. You've got to trust in Messiah. And then Jesus does something that I find to be so beautiful. He speaks exactly to what Nicodemus should know and has memorized, which is Torah, when he says, and the sign to you, Nicodemus, that all of what I've just said to you is true, is that the Son of Man, this one who has come down from heaven, the righteous one, is going to be placed up on a pole just like that snake in the wilderness in the account with Moses. Right. I, th- I think I love that part of it because he, he's, he's appealing to uh, the memory work, maybe going all the way back to obviously before he was even a teenager, he memorized the Torah. And he says, okay, remember in Numbers when the people um, were arguing with God and Moses about the menu. They were, they, again, they were, they were hating God for God's provisions. Um, true story. And so a plague of venomous snakes come and attack the people of Israel that were complaining. And the only way they could be healed is according to God's revelation to Moses. He tells Moses, look, you need to put a bronze serpent on top of a giant shaft and hold it up high. And if anybody would look up at that, if they would just stare at that bronze serpent, they would be healed. And how is that? By faith that God is providing healing. And so he says, okay, you know that story, uh, Nicodemus? Someday soon, let your heart be open. Be looking for the Son of Man to be placed high, lifted up, and he will take away the venom of sin. 
he will take away the sting of death. Be looking for that. And I, I love that he, you know, Jesus knows the end of the story, and so he, he plants this seed in Nicodemus' mind and says, okay, you, you be on the lookout for that. So um, how does this story end? Is there hope for someone that is, that is open-hearted but uh, lost? Is there, is there hope for the older prodigal brother that is yeah. into rules? How does, <laughs> yeah, does, how does Nick, does Nick ever become a saint? Does it Nick, saint, saint Nick. Nick, yes. How do we get to that? Um, well, what's, what's wonderful is that John's given us this account right. in chapter 3, and then if you move all the way over to chapter 19, we get the answers. Um, so it begins in, in verse 38, uh, and this is just after Jesus has been to the cross He's given up his last breath, and so he has died on the cross. And we're told that Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate, and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Pilate gives his permission, and so then um, Joe takes the body away. And then in verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Right, and so let me interrupt before you go on. Nicodemus, if he was following Mishnah and not Torah, he's following Mishnah, it would, be, it would be required because the criminal has died and at the hands of, of Gentiles. So what was supposed to happen is they would pay the Roman soldiers to throw his body in an unmarked grave. That's it. But Nicodemus has been struck by the Spirit of God, and I, I think that you're going to see that he abandons what has been taught about what's been taught about what's been taught, and he'll go back because now he knows the author, and now he knows the spirit of the law, and he knows a Savior. And so the reason I'm bringing all that up is listen to how, how much Nicodemus shows his love in, a, in just the understanding of, of this Jewish burial rite, and that's why we have you here, is mm-hmm. tell us what is, what is the Jewish burial rite, and how is Nicodemus showing his love? So Nick does three things, the first of which is, again, as Matt said, he is willing to touch the body of a condemned man. Uh, In Torah, you are explicitly told not to do this. So clearly what Nicodemus is saying is, I believe this man was not guilty. I believe he was an innocent man, and so I'm willing to perform these rites. Two, he's brought these 75 pounds of the burial ointments. In recorded history, we only have one account of someone receiving anywhere near that amount of ointment, and that's actually Paul's rabbi, who's the great rabbi Gamliel, and he received 40 pounds. And you've got to appreciate that the, the amount, the volume or weight of the ointment that was applied is uh, showing or demonstrating your estimation or the worth that you see in the person to whom you're performing these functions. And then the third and for and me... And that the, was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. It's about worth today, about conservatively, about $120,000. And this is glue. Yeah. This is really good-smelling glue is what this is, $120,000. Um, but the, the third piece I, I find to be the most moving, and, and you really do need to understand burial customs within Judaism, this is regarded as the most humble expression that you can pay to someone in showing dignity and, and an expression of... of how much you care or regard them. Because in Judaism, there is a group of people, and they're called the Chavra Kedisha. It's a holy society. And these individuals are anonymous. Within each synagogue today, you do not know who is in this group. And that is for a reason. Because within Judaism, the highest mitzvah, in other words, the most righteous deed that you can pay is to perform these burial functions according to the traditions. Because if I do this for Matt, Matt can never repay me. 
It's a kindness that you can never express your gratitude or your thanks for. So it's the highest mitzvah. And this goes all the way back to Jacob and Joseph. Because if you recall in Egypt, Jacob says to his son Joseph, just before he's about to die, he says, would you do me a true favor? When I die, would you take my bones, return me to the promised land, and I want to be buried with my fathers, with Abraham and with Isaac. Um, so this is Nicodemus who's making this conscious decision to do this. He does not expect for anyone to ever know that he has performed this function. But he is expressing a couple of things here that is so key for us to understand. It's that he recognizes <laughs> that Jesus doesn't just have value. This was a righteous man. And he and Joe together are going to make sure that Jesus receives a dignified burial. I also believe, as um, Matt said, that this is the movement of the Holy Spirit. Um, Nick <laughs> believes now that this is the Messiah. He has connected the story of the serpent being high on the pole to now Jesus has done exactly what he said that he was going to do according to Scripture. And so now he's saying, I'm going to help to bury him, and then I want to wait to see how God is going to vindicate his son. Um, so I think just a couple of more points, and, sure. then, and then we're kind of wrap. But um, I also think we have to look at, so what are some of the reasons that God chose Nick of all people? Um, I think one reason is that this also fulfills Scripture. Um, you know, we can talk a lot about the crucifixion, and then we can look at Isaiah 53, and we can see literally verse by verse how Jesus being spat upon, mocked, flogged, and crucified, that all of these things fulfilled what Isaiah had said would happen to the Messiah. And this is according to God's will and his plan. But God also purposed that Messiah would be assigned a grave with the rich. And it's Joseph who owns this particular new tomb. And as we all know, at the time, you had to be very wealthy to be able to afford a tomb. Most of the time, you just put your you know, family bones literally in a big box, and then you kind of put that into the ground. So Joe had a lot of money, and then we've already discussed the value or the estimation of what Nick brought to the table with the ointments. Um, so, you know, this is all in fulfillment of Scripture. Um, but I think one piece that we've got to just kind of look at for just a second is that God chooses these two esteemed members of the Jewish community to perform the most righteous act right. on the only truly righteous person. Right. Um, of course, the beautiful um, irony of the story, and, you know, you even mentioned it last week, God always gets the final word. And here we are 2,000 years later. The Bible has circulated across the globe, and we get to know of this account. So God said, Nick, I know you did this, and you put your reputation, you put your wealth on the line for my son, but I get to choose that you get a legacy out of this, and I'm going to put this into Scripture. And it reminds me of 1 Samuel 2 when God says, he that honors me, I will honor. Right. And you have honored my son, and when you honor my son, you honor me. And so we get this account. Um, but then finally, I think that the universal truth that's in this passage is what Matt's been making mention of throughout. You know, we've got Nick here, and then the other end of the spectrum are so many of these stories in the Gospels where Jesus is saving the lame. He's saving the outcast. He's saving the morally degenerate. And then you've got Nicodemus over here, and it's the other side of the spectrum. Right. I mean, socially speaking, these are just, you know what I mean, two different sides of the pendulum. And yet, through the working of time and the Holy Spirit between John chapter 3 and John 19, I think that Nick finally gets it. Because I think when he met Jesus in chapter 3, just like John Wesley said, <laughs> The most repugnant thing to a capable, reasonable person is grace. Right. 
Think about that. The most repugnant thing to a capable, reasonable person is grace. Up until now, Nick's been able to manage his life, and he's been doing a very good job of earnestly managing over the people, the flock of Israel. But now he's looking back on all that Jesus has done, that this is the Messiah, and he's saying, I have nothing to offer you, God. It doesn't matter anymore what's up here. It doesn't matter how many great deeds I've performed. I'm bankrupt before you. Um, and I think that this is an important lesson for us because he earnestly wants to be in the kingdom of heaven. But I think he's finally figured out, I can't earn my way. And I think you've mentioned it. We have people like that in the church. Right. You just don't, you have to, it's not only outside. So I think the question, Matt, is, so what is it that Nick discovered that some of us still need to grasp? Right. I think it is the, absolutely the nature of man. Uh, you can see it in the Old Testament, New Testament, church history. The nature of man is to take, is to take what God gives us and then to write rules about it, and then rules about rules about rules, because um, I, I think, I, again, a, a soul is bent in one direction or another. One, one, one says there are no rules, and I can live any way I want, and another one says, okay, we'll just keep, we'll keep everything under control with rules. And it's, it's interesting if you, again, let's not get too far removed from this. Like, we have our own Mishnah, right? I mean, after 1,500 years, there's a Reformation. And the, and the Reformers were saying one of the, their big battle cries was sola scriptura, only the Bible. And now we quote those same Reformers as though they wrote the Bible. And you have to pledge allegiance to Calvin in some churches now. Why? Because it's, 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 it's funny, right? Somebody taking the Bible and, and it just gets farther away from what you're, people love rules. They love rules, at least for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's, it's easier for someone to tell you what to do and how to live your life than it is to actually do what the Bible requires, and that is to know God and to love him with all your heart. And then follow his will. That's what the Bible requires. And, and sometimes people just, you know, like, they like all the right answers without ever having to have a conversation with God. So tell me where to send my kids to school, and I'll just trust my school for getting them along the way, and I'm going to delegate and just do. Some reasons people love rules, not because it's easier, but because about fear. And when there's fear, then there's a need for control. And if they, if they have enough rules, they feel like they can control the safety of their family, the safety of their marriage, the safety of their children, the safety, and they, and, they, and they can control their environment around them. They feel helpless and alone in a very violent world, and so we were going to structure everything. And some, honestly, it just slips right into, I'm going to control God. Now he's obliged. I've lived a certain way within all of these fences, and now he owes me. And, and this story comes in a, a dramatic contrast to that saying, you know, wait a minute, that's, that's not the way God works. It's about a relationship. And so, listen, we have so many people in our church. So let me just speak to that person that, that comes from this background, some version of this, this Mishnah background. If you're from a toxic family that had rules about everything, or you're from a toxic parachurch or a toxic church, could you, could you not hold God responsible for that? Could you, could you, like Nicodemus, maybe take the things that you could possibly learn from that that's good and then pursue grace instead and then not be afraid of the God who loves you? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. If you believe in him, you will not perish. You'll have eternal life. Not based on what you've done, but because of what he has done. Philip Yancey tells a wonderful story that really encapsulates what's happening here. He said, if you can imagine 
being required to get a master's degree somewhere, let's pretend Germany, and when you're going over there to work on your master's degree, clearly you'd have to learn a foreign language, German. And so, you know, you're going to get that master's. And so you do what you have to do. you got your flashcards, and, and you're trying to stumble through this, these words, and it's grammar that's different than our grammar, and, and you're doing the best you can, but it sounds like you have marbles in your mouth, and no one can even show you how to get to the bathroom. And then you fall in love, like head over heels in love with a young lady that only speaks German. Now things have changed. You have a seismic upheaval in what is motivating you. And now you'll learn German. And it'll be a joy to learn German. The longing eyes of your lover, the, the desire to communicate more effectively. Same duty different motivations. And Nicodemus, is, his early life, who was learning German, and Jesus said, you should meet the author. We should love. For God so loved the world. It's, the Bible is a love letter. Let grace transform you. So for those of you that have committed so much of your life to practicing religion instead of loving Christ. Could maybe this day be the day that you choose to live a born-again or a born-from-above life? That you'd fall in love with God and learn his language? He speaks humility. That's his native tongue. And you'd pursue, your desire would be to follow him and enjoy him. Would you consider making that choice today? Be like Nicodemus in chapter 19. Let's pray to that end. We'll learn some more next week about what we can learn in our 400 years, but let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I lift up the people in our auditorium that have come from difficult backgrounds where uh, they were raised in regiment. They were taught to march. They had rules for so many things. They involved in, I don't know, just either families or churches. They didn't teach grace. They, they just taught you how to follow somebody else. And I, Lord, I'd, I'd ask that you would release them from the bitterness of that, the fear, uh, the misunderstandings. I'd ask that, Lord, that you would overwhelm them with a passionate love that it's inexplicable and they would learn to dance. God, I'd ask that you would teach them about what it means to be born from above. And Lord, if this is the first day that any of that has ever made sense to them, I'd ask that they would trust you high and lifted up on the cross that you died for their sins and there's nothing they could do to ever win or earn your approval that they would just put faith in that death and resurrection as proof that you love them and you've paid for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.